Hello, everybody. Good afternoon, as opposed to good evening. Uh, you're very welcome to a very special edition of Words on Whiskey, episode 13, and certainly lucky for some. So I hope you're all sitting down and have your samples and are set to enjoy what promised to be a very, very special uh, show. Uh, we're joined by two people that I hugely admire in the industry. Uh, we've got uh, Chris Hennessy, who's been a fantastic ambassador for Irish whiskey. Uh, he's working at the Dillon Bar in Kilkenny, and uh, his knowledge of whiskey history and spirit history is uh, second to none, I would say, except perhaps when it comes to whiskey, we might we also have uh, Ger Garland, who is a brand ambassador for Irish distillers, and under that umbrella, of course, comes uh, Redbreast, which we're going to be enjoying today. So I'm not going to spend too long. I'm hoping we have people in here now at the moment. So I'm just checking the the show. If you're on, can you just say hello? Okay, everybody wants to get on the Facebook side, so. Give everybody a few minutes. Okay, so if you don't mind, we'll just take a couple of minutes for people to come into the room and I can see people there. Matt Kelly now from Dempster. Thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. And hopefully you're picking us up okay. Ronan, how are you? Shane, excellent. Hi, Tim, Wednesday, Michael, Kyle. Okay, I think the best way to introduce this really is firstly to allow the person whose brainchild this was, which is uh, Chris, uh, introduce and tell us about this. So, Chris, go ahead. Uh, yeah, so um, the purpose of the tasting is uh, there is a lot of bottles out there that you'll find on auction sites. And there's a lot of bottles out there that people will see as um, prizes. And realistically speaking, they're uh, in-depth looks at our history. So one of the first bottles we'll be tasting is from the late 1960s, early 1970s. And it's something that I've come across on dozens of occasions, sitting on back bars, sitting in cabinets and their prized possessions. For lack of a better word, they're dust gatherers because the seals are rarely ever cracked. These liquid is rarely ever experienced. And when you sit down to a Redbreast 12-year-old these days, it tastes absolutely beautiful. And you're told that over time, the sherry casks have evolved. Over time, the brand has evolved. It's gone through uh, different distilleries from um, Bow Street itself to the present-day Middleton. And you kind of get to the point where you wonder if it's evolved, how? If it's changed a little bit, how? Where the flavors come from? Um, so the purpose of the tasting is to show you from the late 1950s where distillation straight through to today, how they've evolved, how they've changed, what way they have uh, adapted, and how the technology has influenced the taste themselves. And the only way to realistically do that is literally side by side. So spent from last September straight through till now sourcing different bottles specifically from different eras to showcase uh, the different decades. Um, 
of Redbreast itself and the different decades of ownership, cask usage, and then technology changes itself. And there is a there is a charity side to this as well, Chris. Uh, yes. Um, so we chose two charities. Uh, one on behalf of Jerry Garland, which is the Capuchin Centre for the Homeless in Dublin, and uh, the second is on behalf of Omar Fitzel from Dastram Good, which is Little Blue Heroes. Excellent. So, as well as enjoying yourselves, everybody, you're uh, helping those two great causes. So. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. And uh, I want to thank everybody for coming out on an unusual time. Uh, I suppose particularly those in the States are <laughs> just out of bed and drinking whiskey. So we hope you enjoy it. Uh, so, Jer, if you'd like to unmute yourself and uh, I'll give you an introduction briefly. Jer Garland, brand ambassador for Irish distillers, as I mentioned, uh, fountain of knowledge for everything Irish whiskey, I would like to say, and a good friend. Uh, almost a neighbor, and uh, delighted he could make it on the show. So, Jared, thank you for joining us. And perhaps you might like to give us a little intro uh, about yourself and about uh, what we're going to be doing. Sure. Um, well, first of all, I'm very passionate about Red Breast, as you, as you all know. And it's a brand I spend a lot of time talking about because simply I'm a huge fan, like both of you, and and really and many of the people that have tuned in today and it's it's just such a rich um in history it's so rich in flavor and it's such an evocative brand that makes it really interesting and it's one of it's the brand that really got me into whiskey and i think i'm nearly 20 years in the drinks industry and my first encounter with redbreast uh, from a tasting point of view was in I think early 2001, where I met uh, a, a guy who was doing a tasting for us from our distillery called Barry. And I didn't know who Barry was. And I was like, who's Barry? Oh, he works in the, the distillery. And it was Barry Crockett. And we were tasting um, the new vintage of Middle and Very Rare. We were um, looking at other products that were in our range at the time. And then uh, we were shown uh, this red breast whiskey, this red breast 12 year old. And I was hooked immediately. Again, as I said, it's so the story behind it, it is, our, uh, you know, it's the quintessential Irish whiskey. It's just so delicious, delivers every time. And it's amazing that we have the opportunity to taste the evolution of Redbreast over, you know, nearly 70 years here you have of, of whiskey. So if you think about the first whiskey we're going to try, the one from the 1960s that Chris has, you know, curated and put together this lineup. It was probably, it was distilled in the 1950s. So 70 years ago, it's absolutely incredible that we're tasting a, a piece of history here. And these are becoming rarer and rarer and rarer. And it's likely that, you know, for me, I think the first time I tasted this whiskey, um, the first whiskey we're going to try, I tried it um, in 2014. And it was thanks to collectors like Willie Murphy, who had, you know, saved and and squirreled away lots of this old, these older, um, you know, older bottles of whiskey, and it meant that he was able to release them at at various tastings with the Irish Whiskey Society with Celtic tastings, and you know, Chris again has done a great job of uh, putting together a great range here, and it's one of my favourite whiskeys as well. So. That's yeah. that's my yeah. little bit of a story around Redbreast and why why I'm into it. 
Uh, it'll be amazing to see how it's evolved, actually. Chris, do you mind showing you the Sarah the Bottle, please, for, course, for this yeah. particular one, the first one? So you can see it there, everybody. It's probably, the label has probably seen better days. and But this is the, there. obviously it's a Bow Street. Uh, so it would be Bow Street up to the 1970s anyway. And Jer, what's the difference with your bottle and uh, Chris's there? Obviously size. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> near, far away, near, far away. Yeah, the difference, uh, the difference is not much difference. It is the same border outline, same capsule closure. I think it's probably from a very similar a similar time. It's probably late later in the 1960s, and that's more from, um, you know, just knowing by by the capsule closure um, and just the the outline on the label. So it's and it's just in better condition. And this is one of my prized possessions. Um, obviously, I'm very lucky to have it. Okay, so I poured myself a wee sample there. I think. Both of you two are more qualified to give a, a tasting note on this, I suppose. So, well, I mean, I mean, for me initially, um, you know, obviously Chris is doing it the right way. He's looking at it first in the glass, and you'll notice it has a good body on. You know, you've these what you call legs, but you can see it's incredibly oily in the glass. Yeah. So it's going. That gives you an indication of the mouthfeel of what it's going to be like. The color is is a lovely golden hue but it's quite light compared to maybe what we're used to with more modern whiskies um but it still has a lovely golden rather than a copper uh, type of hue to it yeah it's an ambery red almost ambery yeah. red yeah um you know for me i think initially you get this kind of uh, floral uh, citrusy kind of lemon note to it even even a little bit of rubber uh you yeah. know and i mean that in a good way i mean like yeah. Um, you know, like real rubber. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's still it's still fresh. This is amazing a after again. all these years. Yeah, but it's years. kept so much punch in the nose. Great. Well, that's um that's one of the things about it. Obviously, the the label itself looks quite battered. But um, when it came to sourcing all the different whiskies that uh, we'd use for events like this, it's all about the the liquid level in the bottle, the seal of the capsule itself. Um, you want to get it as close to that. This one was um, the equivalent to 750 mils. So you want to get it as close to that 750 mils as possible to make sure there's no oxidization. You can tell by the label, even though it has been through a good bit, it's not... Um, I don't know if it reflects on the camera, but it's not uh, something that's been sitting in the window and stripped of color or anything like that. And you can tell when you actually crack it open and the legs are there. It's as oily and viscous as can be. And the nose is very much alive. And after opening a couple dozen bottles of kind of things from the 50s to the 70s, eventually you'll cop if something's been a little bit oxidized, the ABV level drops. And as soon as that drops, that rubber note that we're getting wouldn't be there the kind of lemon note we're getting wouldn't be there and uh, the whole point of this granted the label doesn't look the prettiest in the world but um it's all about the liquid level to make sure that when we are actually doing this for a tasting i'm doing this for the experience you're getting the actual experience itself as opposed to drinking something old that may not be as it should be um with this one uh, everything is taken out of the bottle uh put measured so this one dropped by four milliliters so that's all that 
disappeared between the 1960s uh, and now. So, yeah, just four milliliters was all. Um, across the whole lot of them, I'll cover it later, but across the whole lot, of them, the most gap was 12 mils. Um, and that was on the 80s one. So, like, uh, this was as close to perfect as I could get with each one of them. And then um, you can just tell in the glass itself, the nose is completely and utterly alive. Um, the color is still there. And that viscous, thick, oily, that could stay dripping in the glass for days. Yeah. Fantastic. Like, the longer it's, longer it's in the glass, uh, for me, I'm getting, like, a more of a herbal-type note, tobacco, cedar wood. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, I'm just really dying to try it now, so I'm going to taste it. So I don't know about you. I really want to want to Slaunch. taste it now. Slauncher. Oh, wow. Mm. Oily initially, and then this pot still spice kicks in, followed by lovely, balanced wood spiciness over the palate. And it fades away slowly, and it's just so oily, isn't it, lads? Like it's oh, really um, is incredible. Yeah. And, and the, the flavors, nice yeah, the flavors break apart as well, quite quickly as well. Um, you know, they separate out into you've you've got kind of mahogany tobacco. Um, it's quite different on the taste to the to the nose, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Anybody getting anything else? Yeah, the, the, uh, the lemon note is kind real of real oil, that kind of real thick oily coatiness, and it's as if your mouth's been coated with the oil first, and it's just bringing across hints of that kind of old spice, hints of that kind of old, almost like real leather. Um, and then as that gets to the back, all of a sudden the spice starts to develop. The that lemon scented nose has kind of disappeared, maybe in the aftertaste, but in the middle, yeah. and getting more of that kind of Herbie floral. Is anybody getting lemongrass at all? Oh. Any lemongrass off the milk? Um, kind of... No, after tasting it, I think it leans in more with the kind of uh, the tobacco and that type of cedarwood type note tends mm. to. Maybe it's because it's now that bitterness is on my palate after tasting it. I tell you, it's really drinkable though, isn't it? And quite. Oh, yeah. So is this 46% still? Uh, this one was uh, 70 degrees under proof, so that would have worked out between 40 and 41%. 40. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It's imper imperial proof. It was just above 40. Um, if you do the exact maths, it's 40%, but uh, a few people I know that have tested the 70 degrees under proof have ended up being a little bit above 40. Yeah. And it's 26 and two-third fluid ounces, is it, as Chris, as well, the bottle size? Yeah, so, they were yeah, so which is 750 mil, and that was yeah, was we're, the we're standard size. Yeah. The imperial ones until we get to the third bottle. Yeah, yeah so, so 750 mil was the standard no. standard size for all bottles. Yeah, there's talk about unifying the uh, size of bottles between the US and here. Is that anything you're hearing about? Uh, last year is the last time I heard about it that the Europeans were petitioning to not have to have bigger bottle sizes to send the 700s all around the world. They have to okay it with the States and South Africa to both to get it uniformed. But um, a lot of them adapt like the, the likes of Tullamore Jew and Powers and um, Jameson. The bottleneck actually fits the extra 50 mils. They don't, they fill to one level and then they fill above. Whereas a lot of the smaller companies will actually have to change the bottle completely. 
And I suppose that the colour of the bottle itself would help preserve the whiskey as well. Uh, the fact that you don't really get direct sunlight on it. Uh, well, and any light, Sergio's, is bad for uh, whiskey. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, and so. strictly speaking, if you're going to store a whiskey, you should store it in the, in the box that came in, in an environment that where the um, temperature isn't going to fluctuate too much, and basically that it doesn't get exposed to light. So all light is really bad, but um, you know, it should be fine on the back bar for a couple of years. No, there's no problem, but. Basically, light is not good for not good for whiskey. Yeah, well, certainly this so hasn't oxidized at all, which is great. Oh, it's beautiful! It's, it really it's absolutely easy beautiful, drink. Chris. Thanks for organising that. That's really good. Um, okay. Do you get that a uh, clovey, spicy type finish on it? Yeah, you get the tingle on the end. Yeah, yeah that's towards, coming towards yeah. the end. That kind of clove oil kind of spice to it, really, really lingering. It's nice. Yeah, and it's a little piece of history oil. there. Like that's oh, amazing stuff. Yeah. Okay. Look, uh, that's a great start. So I think we'll have a look at the next one. Do you want to maybe, Jared, tell us a little bit about how Gilby started before you, we delve into the second one? And, yeah, sure. Uh, the history and the importance it played. Yeah, no problem. Well, the brothers that founded Gilby's, they made their fortune in the Crimean War in the mid 19th century. And they came back uh, to uh, England and set up. Uh, with the relaxing of or the changing of uh, the laws around trading of alcohol uh, under Gladstone, they were able to sell alcohol off-premise. So essentially the off-license was invented. And they set up a, initially it was uh, like, um, as we were talking earlier, it was like a mail order. So you would send your letter, your order, and they would deliver it to your household. So, and they continued on that business well into the mid 20th century where you would have got delivery you know you would have ordered your champagne and your sherry and your port and your cognac and your irish whiskey and you would have got it delivered from a catalog you would order from a catalog and it was delivered to your door there was no real brand names it would have said irish whiskey um catalog number 25 for example yeah. um so and i heard from yeah. Uh, yeah. i heard from eric like in a very short space of time it's incredible when you think back in the day 1850s late 1850s you know they they hit 20,000 customers very quickly and in fact one of their customers was charles dickens and, <laughs> well. and the, they actually took the check from charles dickens and put it in their office for a while so that's one of the little bit of trivia that but I it was a very across. convenient a very convenient way they would send it to you in a, in a sealed container and you know where you were guaranteed good quality and you went to your local tavern and you purchased a quarter a quart of wine and you know um and you bought you know you know another jar of whiskey you weren't guaranteed the quality and you had to bring your own vessel yeah. you know it was a very convenient uh, way of purchasing like we're looking at the world now and that's why they it exploded and they were you know first in they they expanded really really quickly and they were all over um they had sub offices all over britain and then they expanded into ireland later and they had depots in galway and cork and you know even if you go up to um you you go up to thomas street and you go beside a well known german discount a supermarket there's a, a small coffee shop there and if you look up you'll see 
W and A Gilby. So they had small, what you would call off licenses around Ireland as well. And then they also had agents as the other thing, Sergio, so you could sign up and become an agent. Well, they so had what two you and a half thousand. Yeah. They had two and a half thousand agents at one point between the yeah. UK and Ireland. What I saw, and uh, they were certainly innovators, Chair. Because oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, things we take for granted now yeah. were innovations, in, like brands, brands, brands around bottling. Yeah, brands. huge. Because again, you would have gone to your local pub and and bought a, a jar of whiskey or you know a yeah. quarter whiskey or whatever it was, and then you were able to purchase it. Uh, purchase a bottle from them, guaranteed the quality, and they matured it themselves. They blended it themselves. It's yeah. a really a, a, re a business model that became, um, you know, standard operation. I think the standard, right. the, the initial off licenses, I would say, and, and that was largely due to Gladstone yeah. passing those laws, and then he passing further laws to make uh, bottling uh, a formidable kind of competitor to getting casks. But he also, I mean, Gladstone also reduced the tariffs for spirits, for French wines in the UK. Yeah. And uh, Gilby's passed that on. And they were one of the few to actually pass that saving on to the customer. I think that's how they, you know, initially their 90% of their business was wine and other spirits and 10% uh, yeah, spirit. And if you look, and if you look at their catalog, uh, their catalog was champagnes. It was wines from France, yes. Wines from Italy. Uh, they had uh, wines from South Africa, Australia, and this is in the you know the eighteen eighties. You know, yeah. wines from South America, stuff that we all think is a new, a new phenomenon. And basically, they were important wine from Australia. It's absolutely incredible yeah. that they were doing. Well, I mean, they started young as well. So they were 24 and 26 when they started. They got a um, they got a grant or a funding from their older brother. They yeah. set, they sent two young fellows over to Ireland to set up the international agency in 1858 in 31 Sackville Street, which is O'Connell yeah. Street nowadays. So I mean, they they were groundbreaking uh, off licenses essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the building is no longer there. It was demolished in 1971. Their head office, which eventually moved to 46 to 49 O'Connell Street. Um, and unfortunately, it was extensively damaged by fire in the early 20th century. And then they decided to demolish the building in 1971. And what's there now is essentially an office block, you know. So, um, But behind it, they had a bottling hall. They had maturation warehouses in Hatch Street, which was at the end of the of the um, you know the line that came up from Wexford. Um, where that pub which, is now. Uh, it was turned into a nightclub as well, I think, at one stage. No. You know, where Pod nightclub used to pod be. Nightclub, yeah. What would have been uh, the train station um, Hatch in Hatch Street, and um, basically that line went all the way down and linked up with the Rosslare line. So it meant that all of the wine and uh you know sherry and cognac that was imported into a port like Ennis Gorty was put on a train and then brought to Dublin and then ended up at uh the the train station and then out the back of that uh Gilby's had warehousing where they would mature you know they would decant their ports to sherries to cognacs into bottles and distribute them around Ireland you know to Galway, Belfast, Cork etc and, and obviously the, around Dublin. 
they had Marion Square as well was where there were a lot of um, warehouses as well. There, there was, there was, yeah. Um, but that was uh, Findlaters had their uh, warehousing in subterraneously in Marion Square, and then on Fitzwilliam Lane, of course, you had Mitchells and Sons um, subterraneous warehouse as well. But Gilby's had a big, um, you know, they had big warehousing on Hatch Street now, which is mainly insurance, big insurance buildings and that sort of thing. Now they're all gone, but they moved, when Powers moved out of uh, Drury Street in 1965, uh, Gilby's moved in. So Powers in 1964 vacated Drury Street, yeah. uh, which is their bottling hall. And they moved out to Fox and Geese, where our bottling hall is now today. And Gilby's moved in and took over. And Gilby's were there until they finished uh, bottling in 1984 in Drury Street. And they also used the cellars there for maturation. But what I'm trying to get at is they imported sherries, cognacs, all this stuff. It meant they had a lot of empty barrels. So what are you going to do with those empty barrels? Well, you do what what we would do today. You'd rock up to Bow Street Distillery and fill it full of pots of whiskey and then bring it back to your warehousing and mature it. And that's, that's why it has this rich flavor i think redbreast and uh, the quality of the cast they were getting in were obviously very good because they were a, go a company with a good reputation and they had full control of that and it meant that the whiskies we we're tasting are amazingly uh, uh you know good quality like even that's whiskey there we tasted was bottled like 60 years ago and it's really good yeah, yeah. Well, look, let's let's get on to the second one here. Uh, I've poured the second one now. So, Chris, maybe you want to tell us a little bit about this bottle and show us the bottle and uh, tell us a little bit about it. Oh, wow. Business the right way. All right. Um, we're now into the 1970s. And yeah. This is probably the best one to uh, represent the conversation on cast that we just had. The sherry influence on the color, the sherry influence on the yeah. nose, influence throughout the actual cash choices that they have for something that's almost 50 years old at this stage yeah uh, it's all as fresh if you told me this was bottled yesterday i completely and utterly believe you the um, color is different as well yeah so the, the color on this one is probably four maybe five times darker um this does come across like a possibly could have been a wet barrel that it was put into um or wet fatting that it was put into so like one of the things these days, when you get a, a sherry cask that could have sherry for two years, five years, 10 years, um, when you empty it in Hress and you move it across in wintertime like Irish distillers do, um, there's a couple of days, if not a good few days in between emptying it and physically getting to Ireland. The barrel will start to sweat a little bit. The sherry will come out. And of course, this is disgorged before it's filled. Whereas um, with Gilby's, when they empty a cask, if they wanted to roll it to Bow Street that afternoon, the next day, or within a very small period, they can do this. So there'll be a lot of sherry still inside the wood itself. So because this hasn't leached out and because it hasn't been disgorged, it can have a massive impact on color straight away and a massive impact on flavor as well. So, so these are still 12-year-old whiskeys. These are still 12. Now, when Joe may be able to kind of touch on this a little bit more, but when you hop back to the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, when you're talking about a 12 year old whiskey, you're usually talking closer to 12 than these days. So these days, when I say 12, I could have a 15, a 16, a 17, an 18 blended in to get a certain profile. Whereas with a lot of whiskeys back in the, the early days after World War II, 
when they said 10, they meant 10, or they meant 10 to 11 to 12. They usually wouldn't mean 10 to 19, but the, as I was saying, with wet casks, the impact of flavor you get on it, you can get a lot more quicker than these days. So these days you're leaving it in for an extra year or two or three to leach out the same amount of flavors and same amount of influence from the sherries. Whereas with a wet cask, you can get that very, very quickly. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm, I'm watching Chris here sitting down and I can see the legs on his glass from, from here. It's amazing the, the, the thickness on this. But also just one thing about the bottle. I think in the, and it wasn't there initially, they have the initials JJ there on it. You can say it says, uh, I think, bottled by Gilby's in Ireland. Yeah. So that yeah. JJ uh, didn't stay there forever. Uh, obviously, it was a nod to the fact that they got it from John Jameson. Um, yeah. Th they were the largest independent uh, supplier or, or user of John Jameson or Irish whiskey, actually. They were. Worldwide at one point. They had 300,000 gallons in store. So an independent retailer, that's incredible. So what happened in the 1880s is that there was a contract signed with uh, Gilby's uh, to, for Bow Street and John Jemison to be the sole supplier of Irish whiskey to them. Unfortunately, Irish whiskey was already in decline at that period, but it was still a huge seller for, for Gilby's. Yeah. When you come to the early 20th century, Sergios, what happened was in the Canadian market in particular, that John Jemison was a lot more prominent on those Gilby labels. And John Jemison was also exporting from their bottling hall in London to uh, Canada. And essentially, you had two products competing with each other with John Jemison on the label. So a series of legal correspondence goes back between Bow Street and Sackville Street at the time, saying, come on, lads, now you're, you're kind of, you're, you know, you're pushing the John Jemison a bit much now, but you know, it should be more prominent with Gilby's. And really one of the reasons a solution had to be found about how to stop this conflict because Gilby still wanted the spirit um, supplied to them and obviously Bow Street still wanted to supply them. And branding was becoming more important with brands. So they decided to come up with a series of um, brands based around birds. And you, yes. you know, Chaffinch, Yellowhammer, Redbreast, Skylark. Merlin, any I think, the other, yeah. So Redbreast was born and like the first uh, official or the first advertisement I've seen is August 1912. But other people have found earlier, you know, a little bit earlier, um, some evidence that it was called that a little bit earlier than that. But really, it came about because of that. There was a pragmatic reason why the Redbreast name was applied to it and not just JJ and S whiskey liqueur. It became a a brand, Redbreast, and it, it's around very much today. But it's um, you know, br people believe in brands. They take ownership in them, and they give you a quality. Uh, they give you a signet, you know, confidence of the quality of what's in the bottle. Yeah, but getting back to the whiskey. Uh, yeah. Sorry, quickly. But previously, there was twelve-year-old JJ liqueur, and I think before that there was a ten-year-old JJ liqueur, and then after the well, about 1912, like you say, they became branders and developed the Redbreast name. Do you know what happened to those other brands, the old ones? They just fizzled out. You know, the, the bigger sellers were kept on, yeah. you know, and really um, they Redbreast was the one that people wanted, so that's what people bought. It's a bit 
you know, you find often uh, where they probably had a lot of, they probably had different brands and red breasts is the one that resonates with people. And, you know, uh, Birdwatch Ireland and uh, you find uh, the the equivalent in the UK and any surveys that are done done about people's favourite birds, the robin redbreast tends to be either the favourite bird of most people. So it is a, it's a prolific bird. It's, you know, synonymous with the nativity. Um, it's a good reason why redbreast became the, the priest tipple because gilbies were the altar wine suppliers to the, um, the, uh, the priests oh, in Ireland. Yeah. So it meant this is a very popular whiskey among the clergy at one time, and probably they were they could afford it as well. Yeah, it was and the so, priest tipple that was the good bottle of whiskey that was always kept aside for the for the priest visiting the house, which would have been something, and, you know. And there were back then, nineteen twenties or so, you, you you had an awful lot more clergy than you do now. So they probably kept Gilbies alive, you know, during the difficult times. There were, you know. Up to fifteen thousand clergy or something back then. So it would have been. So they weren't the only people drinking red brass, but it's just an no. interesting caveat. Yeah, and yeah. and listen, the whiskey itself, like Chris, uh, you were saying yes. about Chris's glass, it, it it is there is amazing legs on it, um. But and as Chris said, it's darker. Well, it's older for a start, but also Chris okay. is absolutely right. There's more of an influence here from that European oak. It's really, um, it's not a. a it really is a different whiskey. I wouldn't say it's totally different. It's in the same same style that you'd be used to with Redbreast, but it's um, to me like like when you nose it, you get just uh, much more influence from what than you got from the previous whiskey. It's not maybe not as as balanced. There's much more of that vanilla note to it. Um, you know, it's not as fresh as the other uh, as the other whiskey, but still is very fresh. Um, some more molasses there as well, and more caramel on the nose. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's Can kind of like... Uh, first time sitting down to these, uh, I felt the 10 to the 12-year-old is very similar to the 15 to the 12 these days. That uh, Not saying that it's second fill, but it, it's more spirit-driven than um, wood-driven itself. Uh, the 10-year-old is beautiful, but um, from what I've heard, uh, the 12 was becoming so popular after kind of... World War II going into the, the 1960s that to keep up with demand, keep up with stocks, the reason why the 10 slipped in was just to kind of alleviate the demand. Um, I said this one was sourced from sourced from the UK. So it would have been Gilby's send it from Ireland to the U, uh, UK. The person who owned it, uh, it was wrapped in a newspaper from 19... Did they say November 1969 was the newspaper? I'm still trying to get them yeah. to if they still have the original newspaper actually physically send it across. Nice. It's a cool yeah. thing to have it side by side. But, um, was it November 1969 is when it was wrapped in newspaper? Um, and the assumption behind that is it would have been bought in a, a merchant's or a bonder's kind of. Uh, grocers um, wrapped in the physical newspaper and brought home sat in an attic and pretty much untouched and then they took it out said went in the the cabinet for about 20 25 years hence the actual label looking like that but um that was just the exposure but the they said the cabinet was never facing windows and stuff like that so hence no light great yeah. but um when it comes to the 12 year old that yeah like poor number two that we have in front of us 
it's almost night and day. It it is still following that. Still has oil. Still has a good bit of spice. You can tell that it's the same style of distillate coming from Jameson. Whether the the mash bills changed a little bit, the casking has changed a little bit. It's it's hard to know. Um, it certainly is older. It certainly is darker, and it does feel like there's a lot more of a European oak that kind of fortified wine influence on it. Yeah. No, it's like there's there's still fruit there, but it's not like um it's not like lemon. It's more kind of grapefruity, uh, orange peel. You know that? Do you know what I mean? That bitterness, the pit in orange peel. You're getting oh um. But it's bitter like coffee, but it's not coffee like it's hard to explain. It's yeah. not as distinct flavors. It's not as balanced as the last whiskey. It's really, it really reminds me like of an old Dublin whiskey. But it's really spicy, isn't it? Like it's effervescent on your side of your palate. Yeah, I think this um, one touches the side of your palate more, um, the side of your tongue more than the other one. Yeah, if you um, if you let it fall beneath your tongue and then bounce it back up. It really, really coats the spice, elevates the whole way through. If you just let it slip down the sides, then it catches your cheeks and really holds on. Um, it, it's something that if you did genuinely sit down over half an hour, you could actually pick five or six or seven different kind of layers to it. Um, the first one is more of a blender's dream. There's a good uniform flavor structure to it. This one seems to be a little bit more wood dominated. Um, not in a bad way in any way, shape or form, but... Um, the flavors are a little bit more robust. Um, fantastic. The spice levels in it are just beautiful. But uh, you've got the kind of clove oil from the first one. This one for me is more kind of like mace oil. It's a little bit more of a fruity spice. Um, There's definitely raisins and, you know, you're definitely getting that dried fruit characteristic in there. Um, the fortified wine, I think, is giving it, giving it a, a lot of influence. Again, the European oak. Um, like it's, it's it's just would, wonderfully rich, yeah. Would the Lovely. distillers that had gone into these casks have changed much, Chair, over that period? Like, would, would the new make have changed very much between the decades? Yeah, well, you know, to, you're talking about a closed distillery and a distillery that hasn't distilled anything since, um, you know, 70. June in 1970, you know, so... 50 June in 1970. So from my uh, point of view, from what I've tasted, I mean, they did get new stills in um, the 1930s. You know, I've never, I've tasted some whiskey from before then. Um, they were constantly, I suppose, tweaking things and looking at stuff, but I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't know because um, I wouldn't have been, as close to it, say, as I would be to even John's Lane or uh, to um, the distillery in Middleton. From what I know, I don't think it changed a whole lot, Sergio, uh, from uh, from decade to decade in Bow Street in particular. So, okay. again, that's only from what I know from talking to people internally and people that would have worked, worked there. And obviously, I got my first job in the counting house across the road working, working for them. Yeah. Brilliant. I'll just uh, click over to our listeners here. Uh, if you have any questions you'd like to put to, to Jer or Chris, might be a good time to pop in a few comments or questions there. Love to hear your feedback on what you're tasting, what you think of it so far. Yeah, just on the um, 
just on the the recipes itself it'll probably be about three to five years by the time carol quinn has gone through the records and can kind of go back through it and actually pinpoint if there was any changes or if there was any iterations in it um i know she said um previously that uh john jameson kept strict um notes himself on if he did make any alterations or if there was a small percentage difference in the volume of oats that he got that week or wheat that he got that week or um, malt that he got that week. Um, he was actually dictating exactly what it was he was doing throughout. It'll take her a couple of years to get through all the historical records, but um, at least it is something that we'll be able to answer over time. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I think there are more records for powers than there are for red breasts, though, if I'm not mistaken. Are there? Yeah. Whatever. I mean, yeah. Power, powers was a much more progressive distillery it's not to say uh, that Bow Street wasn't a, it was just a different distillery. Um, it wasn't as modern as John's Lane was. They were constantly investing in in uh, infrastructure um, and, you know, they were a bigger seller of whiskey. Jamison made a lot of, um, you know, a lot of, uh, supplied a lot of bottlers with whiskey um, and they made only pot still whiskey, as we know. Um, and basically, from the point of view, you're talking about two totally different distilleries with different cultures and the way it, it was a Victorian distillery, even in the mid 20th century. Um, Bow Street was a Victorian distillery, whereas John's Lane was really modern, progressive, you know, used a lot more uh, progressive techniques in, in distillation. And that's what makes it wonderful and rich, all of the different um w approaches and cultures to making whiskey even within the same city and they're only like to walk yeah. between the two of them is 10 minutes you know like it's very very close close to going into rooftop gardens and football teams and fire teams fire yeah, i mean they were staunchly competitive uh distilleries weren't they absolutely yeah they were um but powers was a a bigger seller it was a bigger whiskey it had um, you know, it was they were they were a bigger distillery. They they were um, they sold more whiskey. You know, Jemison was mainly a Dublin uh, Dublin distillery, um, or Bow Street was mainly supplying the Dublin market. And you know, up till the nineteen seven, you know, up until the nineteen six late nineteen sixties, you would have gone into a bar, say like the Palace Bar, and you would have looked at the back bar and seen five different bottles of Jemison all in yeah. different molds of bottles with different labels supplied by different bottlers. And, um, you know, and that led to, um, you know, as it just led to, um, I suppose, a lack of consistency from a branding point of view. People weren't able to, to grab onto it. That iconic green bottle that we know and um, that we see in the back bar today all over the world, really that started when the families, uh, Powers family, the Jemison family and the Murphys came together in 1966 and they essentially um, looked at everything they were doing and thoroughly modernized uh, all of the approach that they had to making whiskey, uh, to marketing whiskey and also with the brands to, you know, bring them into the into the 20th century and really say, well, look, we fundamentally have to look at everything here, packaging, um, you know, way we're making things. And so they decided to build a brand new distillery down in Middleton but also um, they decided to create that iconic uh, bottle that we know now today. Um, yeah. So people always expect, you know, Jamison has been around for a very long time, as we know, 
since 1780. But um, it really, it is um, a, a recent phenomenon, if you can call what is it, 50 years ago. Yeah, so, uh, so in the world, in the world of whiskey, 50 years is probably a small amount of time. Yeah. Look, I wanted to touch on um, the Irish distillers, Vintners. So, what, so when Gilby's were approached and taken over by IDV, um, yeah, things things did change a little bit then, did they? They did. So in uh, 1984, um, which is very good because the next whiskey that we're going to try is the last of the uh, Gilby's bottlings. And uh, basically, 1984, you have whiskey up to, you know, so from what we hear, um, there was uh, basically uh, whiskey in warehouse that was, you know, 28, 30 years old, 32 years old in in warehouse uh, that was being bottled because they started bottling everything really um, yeah. as they were taken over because the brand was now um, going to be uh, not produced by IDB anymore. It didn't really want to go down that direction. And the brand then was bought by Irish distillers. But all of their stock wasn't taken on by Irish distillers. It was actually bottled uh, by them. Yeah. And then in 1991, Irish distillers started uh, So that was the first one. That's when it stopped staying produced by Gilby's of Ireland. It was in 1991. Yeah, 19, yeah, 1991. But there was a gap of between essentially 1985, if you want to call it, and 1991. Yes. Uh, there was yeah. no red breast being bottled. But guess what? It but never went off they had stock, though, Gilby still, didn't they? They had stock because they bottled everything in 1984. Right. So they were selling. But because the volume, the consumption levels of whiskey were so low compared to what they are now, even today, yeah. it meant it took them that period of time uh, to sell it. So it actually never went out of stock, unfortunately. Okay. Whereas okay. nowadays, you know, the volumes they were selling then, we'd probably sell in a month. You know, yeah. Redbreast is... Um, growing at a phenomenal rate it's you know it's uh, really really successful and uh, is driving the premium whiskey category for irish whiskey and introducing people to it um but it's just where again if you look at it from the lens of now it it is um when i even started in the whiskey business in 20 years ago the volumes that we were selling then are so much smaller than even now today you know whiskey has grown massively particularly in the last decade which is brilliant. But, you know? but in 1991, when it did come out, it, it was marketed for, uh, I think the quote was, those in the know, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, in 1991. So people that knew their history and were going back, they were kind of saying, yeah, yeah here's our old okay. favourite back again. So, but look, uh, absolutely, but we haven't, we haven't left here. Gil yeah, we haven't left Gilby's yet. So this bottle that Chris has was bottled in Drury Street. <laughs> Oh, you see it there? This is the last of the Gilby's bottlings. Um, you know, 1980s. Uh, it could be 82, Chris. It could be, you know, but it is the last, the last of the bottlings. Um, it's the red, red capital. It probably is, is one of the later, later bottlings that, that comes from there. Um, it is much, uh, what I would call, dustier and meatier than the, the previous two. You know, there's still a lot of fruit there on the nose, and it's distinctly that kind of red breast, you know, influence from those fortified wine casks or the European, uh, European oak or those sherry barrels. Yeah, I'm actually getting a less powerful nose on this one than I was on the previous two. 
Yeah, it's again, it's a much older whiskey than 12 years of age. Right. You know, okay. we don't know exactly how old it is. So Tim, who Tim Corbett, um, uh, one of our colleagues who unfortunately passed away in the last number of months, was a rep for Gilby's in the southeast. And uh, Tim was a, a absolute gentleman, worked in our uh, shop in Middleton, but had a vast experience in the whiskey, in, in the wine and spirits industry over, you know, four decades. And Tim um, uh, put me in touch with the former bottling hall manager of Drury Street for Gilby's, who happens to live in East Cork. And now he retired to East Cork after he left. And he was saying there was whiskey in there up to 36 years of age in the very last bottlings. But for me, this is still quite fruity. That's why I'm, again, using just experience and having tasted these things before. I think this is probably, you know, maybe 82, 83. It's not the very, the very last ones are, what I can tell you, are dusty, um, you know, really, really overwooded. But I'm still getting a lot of fruit from this, um, like stewed red apple, that type of note to it. Yeah, more on the red fruit side for sure. Red fruit, um, and it's, but it is, uh, the reason you're saying it's not as spicy, not, it's because it's really very, very mellow, uh, com yes. because it's been aged for such a long period of time. So this could have whiskey up to 18 years of age in this, or? Old, older. Really? Yeah. Yeah, older. And very, very lucky, just Ireland's a small country. You know, Tim was able to put me in touch with the bottling hall manager, and I asked him about different and he said at the very last bottling they were putting casts of 36 year old whiskey in there you know um, do you know how about how it came about that uh grand met essentially grand met sold the brand to idl i mean i know i know uh gilby's went on to pursue bailey's they wanted, they wanted the wine, sergio's they purchased the wine brands gilby's wine brands they didn't right. want this niche small bottling in a, uh, a you know a small island yeah. you know off uh, off western europe they wanted those big one like barton and guestier um yeah. these are all big big brands they wanted they didn't want this little you know quite complicated brand that had you know you had to purchase age stock which is no longer available from the distillery yeah. that you had pre recently purchased it for it was too much of a, a headache for them. So they just said, you know, we would you like this? We don't really particularly are, you know, interested in producing this. And I think, again, it's a single pot still whiskey. It's tradi our traditional style of whiskey. And there was a commitment to continue to produce this style in Middleton when we moved to Stilling from Dublin. So it totally fitted with what we were trying to do. And initially, Edward Dillon... Uh, were the people who distributed this brand for us. And then uh, Barry and Fitz, uh, sorry, not Barry and Fitz, uh, Fitzgerald and Company, which mm -hmm. uh, I is the company I initially started working for briefly, which became a wholly owned subsidiary of Irish Distillers. And then it became an Irish Distillers brand um, mm -hmm. after that. So it, 1991 is when Irish Distillers started making it, um, I suppose, taking over the maturation and the bottling. Um, and Gilby's, you're looking at late, you know, 1984, when, as you said, Grand Met and United United Beverages essentially took over the whole thing. So yeah, so I mean, in the in the early 70s, was it IDB decided that they were no longer going to be 
supply and third party uh, no, I, suppliers? Early 1970s, it was uh, Irish distillers. So, Irish, okay. yeah, so IDL said that basically um, the business model that had been previously uh, to supply wholesalers and bonders with bulk stock, we were going to give notice to um, not renew the contracts uh, yeah. over that period in the early 1970s, with the exception of one, uh, which, product, was, yeah. which was Mitchell's. And that was a very, again, a very small niche brand at the time. And now it's getting great success and is really popular. The spot range is growing all the time. Uh, I hope to see more uh, from that range in the future sometime. And, uh, yeah, you know, something Redbreast, pretty soon we're expecting. Well, I have you pinned, Ger. We might be I, expecting something pretty soon from well, spot range. I wouldn't, know, I wouldn't know anything about that. But, you know, we're talking yeah. about Redbreast today. I don't I. I have very little information about what goes on. So the opposite the color to story. red, I would say. But Chris, what do you think I'm, of this uh, number three? Um, number three is fantastic. Uh, it's a lot lighter than the first two. Um, does remind me of a does remind me of um, kind of Paris Gold label when it comes to the spice and a little bit of little bit less oil, um, which you get from Gold label with the the grain element coming in. The the pot's still spice. There's a good bit of fruit there. Um, the spice itself is a lot more calm. It's a lot less. It's a lot more kind of that raw spice driven as opposed to clove oils and that kind of oily spice. Um, it's a lot more kind of similar to the bacon spice itself in the powder form. A um, little bit of cinnamon off it. The, the kind of citrusy element has got a lot more grapefruit, stepping away from the orange and the lemon. Um, quite nice. The uh, the ABV we've dropped down to forty percent. Could be okay. adding to the the fact that the the impact has come down a little bit. We've dropped to three percent from the bottle number two. Yeah, I mean it's the premium, also, the premium Gilby's. Yeah. The premium Gilby's back in the late eighteen hundreds was being bottled at fifty seven percent, and that was their like they had the three brands I think um, that we talked about earlier there, and this was. Their twelve-year-old was bottled at fifty-seven percent, which I suppose is pretty equivalent to the modern-day uh, cast strength version of Redbreast. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's it certainly is. Look, if we are, we're going to try Redbreast cast strength later on, and in, in later on, and certainly there is more of an appetite uh, for it now. And I think, you know, the reason for um, the reason for this is the minimum you could bottle, uh, say 70% proof, which equated to 40% ABV. And you tend to find that that tends to be the industry standard they bottle it at. But as you said, the premium, there obviously was an appetite and a market for castrate. And certainly, yeah. I suppose in 2011, when we brought back castrate, we certainly realized that. And there's more and more demand for it. But I know there's a lot of whiskey drinkers, and hopefully, some that are listening that are big fans of cast drink whiskey and want, you know, um, it to be all the whiskey they drink and all the new whiskeys we bring out uh, to be at that level. But you have to remember there are a lot of people that are, are not uh, experienced or equipped enough to be able to cope with a cast drink whiskey. So, um, you know, there are people that that happily, you know, would be happy to drink a, a 40% ABV whiskey um, and that's their, their palate. So I think Castrate whiskey will be reserved as a, uh, you know, a premium product. I think uh, for 
connoisseurs like yourselves to to consume uh, because you want to try something that is unadulterated, you know, not chill filtered, that is, you know, straight, essentially, as it came out of the barrel and into your glass. But I do have a bottle um, of water, but I'm actually, but these are so yeah. rare, I'd be ashamed to add water to them. Just, But I mean, you know, I mean, tasters and blenders obviously bring them down quite a bit of level just to expand the flavors and, and evaluate the product more. But uh, yeah. Chris, have you anything else to say about this particular one? Uh, just touching on the the cast strength, if you were to hop back to from the 60s and below for a lot of brands, especially um, merchants and bonders, uh, one of the bars that we have is JK and Walsh's in Waterford. And for years, they were merchants, bonders, spirit grocers. They would get in a full cask and it was up to them to dilute it themselves, to bottle it themselves, label it themselves. And it was uh, part of a contract between themselves and John Jameson, themselves and John Powers to cut it with water, bring it down in ABV and be trusted to bottle it at the right amount. Um, so that was one of the arguments that they decided, well, look, we're going to take control of our products and protect our brand by yeah. not distributing. Well, that's it. Like you're, you're handing, as John Jameson, he's handing his liquid over to Gilby's and entrusting yeah. that they're going to bring it down to a certain ABV. They're going to sell it as their own, but they still have the name on the brand. When you're handing it over to a bar or to a company, you're still doing the same thing. You're entrusting that, one, they're not going to cut the liquid with some other source. They're going to stick with 100% John Jameson and Sons, and they're going to bottle it as is, or they're going to bottle it under their own um, their blend themselves and uh, when at the end of the day it's still John Jameson's son's names on the label it's still their brand in behind it and it's still the consumer who recognizes that so as you were saying earlier on when it came to two whiskeys being in America both with the same name on it even though they're coming technically from two different sources um, you're you're still recognizing that JJ and S you're still recognizing that John Jameson and son and unfortunately, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, throughout, there was people who were illiterate and they would recognize a red breast or they would recognize the red breast name. They'd recognize the JJNS or the three swallows. There'd be something on the label that they might be able to recognize as opposed to the full details that we can re read right here, right now. And because of whatever it is they're recognizing, they're asking, can I have the three swallows? They might be able to say powers. They might be able to read it, but they're asking mm. for the three swallows. Um, if you hop a little bit further in time, when we have the actual red breast itself on the label, there's certain brands around the world that would have had animals uh, or something that is recognizable, something that you would say in everyday life instead of reading. And that was literally due to illiteracy, wasn't it? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so that's the, one of the reasons the, um, why some brands became very, very popular. So it's interesting, you know, uh, um, Jemison had stars to indicate age, as Chris was saying. So one star... Is a five-year-old, two stars, seven-year-old, three stars, a ten-year-old. Um, the swallows started off with like that as well, Chris. There was one swallow for a five-year-old, two swallow for a seven-year-old, and three swallow for a ten-year-old. <clears throat> um, so they just they stole this moniker from co the cognac industry. So you know, VS, VSOP, one star, two star, three star. So basically, the idea was cognac. Pre-Phylloxera was actually the biggest drink, spirit drink in Ireland. And then Phylloxera came along and those little aphids or viruses, they thought at the time, killed the vines in Europe. 
and it meant that the price of cognac went through the roof. But because in Ireland there were big cognac drinkers, these bot even the bottle shape uh, that we love about Redbreast, particularly one Chris, Chris, if you lift up the old bottle shape, they stole that shape essentially from the cognac industry. Okay. And a little, a little beside uh, is also there's a well, well-known cream liqueur brand, uh, which also has a very similar bottle shape, and they got the bottle Made shape from ago. from the Gilby's bottle. So yeah, so that's yeah. it. So yeah. The other, the other point of interest that I didn't know was that port actually outsold sherry up until about the uh, late 1900s or late 1800s. Uh, so port was a bigger seller in the in England particularly than sherries. So Gilby's kind of copped on to the trend of moving from port to sherry. Uh, they really had an amazing foresight, actually, you know, from the, doing the distribution model, going to going to the bottle size, going to the off licenses, going to the sherry finish. You know, they were groundbreakers, I suppose, of their time. And yeah, look, the brand has survived till today, which is amazing. And they sourced their uh, sherries and ports and their Irish whiskey directly from the source. Yeah. So that's what I was saying. In the eighteen in 1886, I think John Jemison went to London and signed that exclusivity contract to supply them. So it was not. It was a. They didn't buy it from a merchant or a, they went straight to the bodega and purchased yeah. a sherry, or they went straight to the port house in 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 the Douro Valley and they purchased the 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 port directly from what well, were probably Scottish, Irish, and French families anyway, you know, yeah. and they and Bordeaux wine directly from Bordeaux, and again a lot of Irish families in Cognac, a lot of um you know English and Irish families in Bordeaux as well. So. I mean, there was that big network going on there as well. But there is um, records that sherry, we were the largest per capita consumers of sherry in the world in Ireland at the turn of the 20th century. So it meant there was a lot of empty sherry barrels. And that's why you get this big sherry influence on, I suppose, the whiskies that we love. It's 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 there in Redbreast. It's there in, in uh, Jemison. You know, it's yeah. we like the influence of sherry uh, barrels in our in our whiskey. Excellent. Okay, I think what we're going to do, actually, folks, if that's okay, we're going to take a five minute break. I'm going to change the battery on my phone because we don't normally do shows that are two hours long, and uh, we'll come back in five minutes. We'll leave you with a. Well, I'll leave Chris and Jer here with you, and uh, I will <laughs> pop out and uh, just come back in five minutes if that's all right. If there are any questions, please. Uh, Feel free to pose it to the guys. Thanks very much.
Am I in mute? Oh, you can. I can't hear myself. Okay. Hello, everybody. Oh, now I can. Welcome back. I hope you had a little bit of a breather there and a bit of a break. And uh, we'll get back into it. So I suppose at number four on the list is, obviously, we're getting closer to what we expect modern-wise. And this is... Uh, Chris, you tell tell us a little bit about this, how you came to acquire it, and uh, why you chose this one. All right. So these days, uh, there's a jump between the 12, the cast rent, and the 15-year-old. And three different whiskies will usually divide the room on which one's your favorite, because they bring you in three completely different directions. The 12-year-old is quite cherry-forward. The cast rent gives you the best of all worlds. And the 15-year-old um, relies a lot on second fills and it's a lot more distillate driven very similar to the first uh with this one um it's regarded as quite sacred this is the very first 15 year old that was released it was released for the la maison du whiskey 60th um anniversary in 2006 and i can't get the light on this again as it uh you can always tell it's l5346371 and that little tiny code, which is usually sitting just underneath the 700 mil mark, that will tell you the difference between the original 15-year-old for La Maison and the next uh, like three batches, four batches. Um, the very, very first one is, like the rest of them, at 46%. But it includes a certain amount of older whiskies and a certain amount of traditional pot still, which is a lot heavier and a lot more viscous than um, your mud pot and your light pot. And with this one, it's it's almost night and day. It's absolutely fantastic, and it created such uh, created such um, hysteria when it came to the flavor profile. It came because it was a, a massive jump from the twelve year old. It's still same style, still same profile that you would associate with Redbreast, but it was distillate driven as opposed to cask driven. Yeah, which is and this one, this one, Jerry as well. I think. This one, I feel, is one of the neglected ones in the range, the 15-year-old. I think possibly because it is so different to the 12 and the 21. It, it doesn't it's have that kind of... Um, yeah, it's half, half, the price, half the price of 21-year-old, but not yeah. half as good. And as Chris said, it's dist more distillate-driven than 12-year-old because of the use of refill casks for the first time. Um, and it's, you know, it it was, this was a limited uh, bottling, as Chris said, to celebrate the 60th anniversary of uh, Le Maison, the whiskey. And basically, it's, um, you know, approximately 15 to 19 years of age is, is the, uh, the approximate age range. Uh, 15 being the youngest whiskey in it. Um, but there's second uh, and third fill barrels used in here as well. So, you know, compared to, say, Redbreast 12-year-old, it doesn't have that uh, big influence from the wood that you find. There's two ways to reduce the influence from uh, the, the wood, and one of those is to reduce the age, and the other is maybe to use casts that have been used before. So these casts have been used to make Irish... They've been used to make um, American whiskey before, They've been used to make Irish whiskey before, and then they're used to make uh, Redbreast 15-year-old. And the same with um, the sherry butts that are used here as well. And the other thing to say about it is, is that 
at the time, there wasn't a huge appetite uh, for uh, to expand out the Redbreast range. And there's two gentlemen that were involved here, Michael Boren um, and Michael Cunningham. So the two mix, and Michael and um, Michael were very much involved in the travel, retail and export side, side of the business. And they went down to Middleton, saw all of the jewels that they had down there, that people really, you know, maybe didn't have the the the, um, the knowledge or the experience to say, where's the opportunity to put, put these whiskies? And everything from the label that Chris showed to, um, you know, the description on the bottle was hugely influenced by the two lads and what they wanted to go to this customer, Le Maison de Whiskey, which is a lovely whiskey shop in Paris, but also one of the biggest uh, wholesalers of, of spirits in Europe. Um, so um, it is, it's amazing that this product came about at all. And then when it did come about, as Chris said, uh, writers like Dave Broom and, um, you know, other whiskey writers were really excited by this whiskey. And from, as Chris said, the flavor profile and what it was. Yeah. But, um, you know, it is lighter. It, it's more herbal. It's not as... You know, fruity as you get from uh, Redbreast 12-year-old. It's 46%. It's non-chill filtered. Uh, bottled in 2015. You know, late in the year in 2015. And obviously 2006 was the, the year it was launched. You know, do you understand what I mean by that more kind of herbal note? It's it's more grassy, dry yeah, grass. Fresh cut grass, yeah. Yeah. It's not like, it's more like if there is green fruit there, if there is fruit, it's green fruit, like gooseberry, yeah. that kind of thing, you know, delicious all the same. Can you hold the bottle up there again, Chris? Yeah, Just of course. Or Ronan wanted to have a, a closer look at it there. Um, Ronan so Collins. Is this, is, yeah. Ronan, Ronan wants to see, is it his bottle? <laughs> yeah. So it can Andy, be if you ever you, visit you can see, You can see non-chill filtered on the label. Um, you can see, you know, age 15 years, yes. Um, but the branding is old. It looks old. It's, you know, it, it looks antique. Um, at the time, this was a one-off. It was done, again, as I said, two gentlemen recognised that there was this amazing stuff down in Middleton that people like Barry Crockett, his father, and Brendan Monks, Monks who was the master of maturation and, and the blender at the time, these guys had... You know, experimented with lots of stuff and we're really really lucky because if they hadn't done all of this experimentation all of the new expressions around red breast and then that dedication to wood quality that was accelerated by kevin o'gorman when he was head of maturation and those distillates that were created by you know barry crockett and his father and um, and that were essentially custodians of uh, pots of whiskey at the time and now there's brilliantly there's loads of other people um, yeah, and making it basically, they wouldn't have been able to. Um, we wouldn't have had all of these barrels of uh, stuff down in Middleton to be able to do something like this. And 2005 is not that long ago in my lifetime. It's 15 years ago. But in in um, you know the way whiskey has moved on since then, it's just absolutely incredible. And again, it was done. I think they redid this in 2008 and 2009 as well. And then eventually decided in a, about um, 
I think nine years ago, that this would become a permanent member of the Redbreast family. So, I mean, the uh, the 2008 one was made available in the distillery, I think, down in Middleton uh, last year or the year before. They had they found some old bottles and they put them up. Yep. And uh, and it was but, different. It was it was different to the one uh, both Chris had and to the one we have now today. So yeah. the one now today is more in the vein of the 2005 bottling, 2006 edition, um, and 2009. And basically, um, you know, if you drink Redbreast 15 today, it's more like this. The 2008 is very, it's different. Sorry, Joseph, yeah. just the difference. Well, can you give us any breakdown on the uh, mix of uh, malted to unmalted in this or the different styles of pot still that were used? Yeah, so there's two different types of pot still used in, um, well, in this one, actually, there's, there's three different styles in the one we're tasting. And uh, normally with red breast, you have two different styles of pot still, a light style of pot still um, yeah. and a, a more medium style of pot still. And those two uh, are aged. One is ex aged exclusively in ex-American whiskey barrels and the other is aged in both Amer ex-American whiskey barrels and uh, ex-bourbon barrels. And then they're aged for, in this case, 15 to 19 years. And they're refill barrels in the case of 15 year old. So okay. that's why this 15-year-old Le Maison, the whiskey 15-year-old, is not as fruity as the 12-year-old because it reduces the influence of, of the wood yeah. in the whiskey. So Matt so, Kelly is asking a question, Jerry. The initial batch that was sent, launched in the US, was that more in line with the current version? Uh, yeah, it would have been. Yes, is the answer to that. Okay. Yeah, it's more in line with the current version or... Looking back at the 2005 version, that would have been essentially what they were trying to emulate. But you have to remember that the whiskies that were used in the 2005 were from a experimental, a very limited amount of experimental casks. So yeah. they weren't able to replicate it exactly because, you know, every barrel is unique. And the barrels that were used in the 2005 whiskey um, are very, there was a very limited amount of them. So they had to build stock back up. For the relaunch um, of the barrel of the whiskey that Matt is talking about, and you know, which would have been nine years ago. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully that makes sense. Uh, and Brian um, Hennessy had a question there, and Chris, maybe you could give us the answer. What was the price on on purchasing this? Like to come across this now, individually, start to finish, or in this particular fifteen-year-old individually. I. In, from door to door, one hundred and fifty-six. Uh, yeah, and this was a couple months before uh, Le Maison de Whiskey re-released the two thousand and six bottling, uh, which was like one hundred eighty, one hundred ninety euros. I think it was less than two anyway. Um, but yeah, you can you can find the fifteen-year-old uh, at um, auction every so often. It's extremely rare, except for Irish whiskey auctions, where you will see them stating in the in the comment section beneath or description section beneath that it is this code and it is the specific one, not the two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine. Yeah. So, um, but just yeah, explain uh, that the L, the L code Chris is talking about on the bottom, L, and then there's a number. The number relates to the year. So if it's five, it's two thousand and five. 
the next three numbers, whether they begin with a zero, a one or two or a three, are the Gregorian day. So if it's zero, zero, one, it's the first day of the year, which is uh, January 1st. And if it's 365, it's the 365th day okay. of the year, which is New Year's Eve. So th that's an easy indicator. And then the rest relate to the bottling line, Sorry, the place it was bottled, the bottling line, uh, the time of day, the batch, all that sort of stuff. So, so you I'm can, reading the barcode wrong. I wouldn't bother. The barcode means nothing. That, yeah. I don't think there isn't even a barcode on the bottle anymore because oh. it's on the box. Okay. So yeah. It's, it's on the box and it's just beneath the 700 mils usually, just yeah. below the label, kind of in a print form. It's, it's, it's so light you could barely see it, that kind of thing. It's almost yeah. like a hologram. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is um this is uh the second example of a whiskey from Irish distiller is that basically it's a consumer whiskey. So Black Barrel was originally released for the states or sorry for the South American market uh or South African market South African market sorry. Um and when people outside of South Africa from Ireland got a chance to taste it this is something completely unique from Jameson they got a taste for it and all of a sudden there was demand for it and this 15 year old is another example of it the 60th, 60th anniversary was only supposed to be a one-off yeah. eventually there was enough demand for it that they decided to do it again and then all of a sudden from 2011 this is actually a permanent skew um, like cask mates yes and which is quite funny because as you were saying earlier on when you jump from price point and taste point from the 12 year old to the cast and 15 to the 21 it is very different because it's second fill and third fill, but it is only in existence because of the people who appreciate the taste of it and the people who demanded it, so to speak. That's the reason why this exists. And it's also the reason why the 21 exists because this is 15 to 19 years old. So there's no point in having a red breast 18 year old. You already have 19 years old in this. So you have to go higher to get it. And because the 21 year old goes so far up, that's how we end up with something even higher. Yeah, and I imagine the vatting process, Ger, for this is actually pretty complicated. So, um, so the, the vatting process from the point of view of how the different components are put together. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, all of that, so many different. Of, yeah, it's so so many different components. Well, the the you know all of that is worked out by the our blenders, Billy Lighton. Uh, we're currently our blenders now, Billy Lighton and Dave McCabe. So they will work out exactly the proportions of, of what should be added, of exactly what it is, how much should be uh, married together um, at any one time. And they obviously empty or dump or uh, disgorge, I prefer to use, uh, the same. They empty the whole barrel. They don't do it in a little bit here, a little bit there. They'll empty the whole barrel. So it's one barrel of this, three barrels of that, four barrels of that. So it is... From obviously the recipe, if you want to call it that, or the total makeup of the blend is a is a, a secret because it's you know it's it's yeah. their their skill, but yeah. they work all that out themselves and they do it on a smaller scale in their lab, and then the that is uh, then a warrant is sent down to the warehousing for the casts that are to go into that batch to be brought up to the vat house and then, you know, they're all disgorged in a bond and then basically vatted together in the vat house. So it is, it's, I think any whiskey is complicated, Sergio, whether it's uh, Jemison or it's um, 
it's do you know what amazes me is how consistently they're managed to get the whiskey to taste their thereabouts exactly the same all the time. Yeah. It's just because I think it's still the quality of the inputs going in, but it's also the skill of people like that are you can't underestimate the skill of people like Billy Lighton or Dave McCabe. Yeah. I've yeah. been naively naively tried to blend a few things together. My God, it's it's really, really tough job. Oh, blending um, them it, is easy. Blending them, it's making them taste good. That's the problem. <laughs> well, he does that too. I'm an excellent he? blender, yeah. but I'm a terrible. The result is terrible. But never, never mind. I'm good at drinking it, though. I, I think I'm well, better. Yes. But it's, it, yeah. it's fascinating that essentially all of these whiskies. Um, you know, the first three whiskies we tried came were distilled in one distillery, essentially from probably a very similar mash bill. Let's, be, you know, it wouldn't have been. I don't think there would have been a huge variation. Again, I don't know exactly, but from talking to uh, people in any articles I've read about it, I don't think there would have been a huge variation. And then you have a company that would have consistently brought in good quality casks from the same suppliers and then would have known a lot about blending themselves. But you get three totally different whiskies because of age profile, because of circumstances. And then we move on to a whiskey that was essentially an experiment um, yeah. the limates on the whiskey one and it's only because there was two passionate fellas about Potsdam whiskey that met a group of passionate people in Middleton Distillery and were able to kind of say what have you got that special that we can bring to a customer um, and show them to celebrate their anniversary um, yeah. and now you know none of this can be taken for granted that's all I'm saying it's 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 um, no, but one thing I do like uh, one thing I really do like about the Redbreast is Every year, every batch is slightly different. There is something slightly yep. different. And, I, you know, I have tasted several batches, and I, I do have one or two that really stand out for me. I mean, the Redbreast cast strength from last year, I thought was one of the best that's come out for a long time. The one I actually have here that was yep. kindly given and consumed. But, uh, yeah, excellent. Okay, well, look. Let's move on because we're not going to be here all night. I hope. Really, you want to you want to try you want to try the dream cask? What? Uh, Do you really uh, want? To? I was actually going to say if you want to go to same thing if you want to go to the dream cask first before the cast strength. Yeah, even though we're the going cast strength is, is is you know. So let's Get, let's go to the dream cast yeah. next. Why not? Uh, it, it fits in two different ways. One, the cast strength is going to be quite intense, and uh, the dream cast, there might be a couple of different things that people miss. And the second yeah. thing is, as it's 28 plus years old, it actually goes back in time further than the, the cast strength. So even though it was bottled afterwards, it's it yes. does fit the, the, the timeline. Okay, so let's, do that. let's go with the 28 year old everybody, and Darius showing us there. A lovely bottle, correct? Redbreast twenty eight. Yes. And Chris. So, yeah. in um, yeah, go ahead. So my, my first question was, um, how did it? How did this Dreamcast program come about? Program, yeah. So it came about simply because uh, Billy Lighton, our master blender, was asked at a a World Whiskey Day event, I think in 2016, um, if you were to have what they call, you know, a dream dram in other in other countries, uh, what would be, if you could pick any whiskey in 
Middleton Distillery, what would that dream whiskey be? And Billy was kind of like, oh, that's actually a really good question. So what he did was the following year for World Whiskey Day, he decided to showcase a, a 31-year-old single pot still um, all sherry whiskey. Um, and some lucky, um, I think about 100 whiskey uh, writers and uh, bloggers and that sort of thing were sent out a little bottle, actually not too dissimilar from this, this size, yeah. uh, with a glass and a sample of this 31-year-old whiskey. And obviously a sherry bud is, what, 500 litres? So they, 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 uh, they bottled you know, a small amount. I'm trying to think what size the bottles were, but it wasn't much. It was maybe 20 litres of, of whiskey. And then what happened was um, then the following year in 2018, they decided then to sell the remainder of that cask, the 32-year-old single pot still um, all sherry cask on the Birdhouse website on the www.redbreastwhiskey.com forward slash redbreast uh, birdhouse um the, the members area of the of, of the website. So all you had to do was sign up. You got an email out to say it was going on sale on the website at a certain date, and it absolutely flew out. I think it took um, a, a couple of hours to sell. Um, you know, I don't think it was, it was definitely nothing like it is now, even today. Then the following year, they brought it, he you know, was challenged again to come up with another type of a dream, a dream cask, and a cask refer referring to a barrel, barrel of whiskey. Yeah, so the PX that Sergio has has behind him, um, and that was a 20-year-old PX. So 20 being the youngest whiskey in, in, in there, and PX referring to another type of grape as opposed to Palomino Fino, which is in Oloroso, um, in uh, Palomino Fino is in Oloroso, in um, Manzanilla and Fino and all that, but P PX is Pedro Jimenez. It's just another style of grape, very sweet, very rich, uh, matures on the vine. Um, and, you know, Billy really loved this sort of flavor and decided it would work really well with, with, with his whiskey. And then this year, again, they were challenged with coming up with another uh, dream cask and they decided this year they would look at well, they had a 27-year-old Ruby Port, and uh, which was launched back before lockdown, and they had uh, decided that they would use another fortified wine because that's what Redbreast is all about: this fortified wine influence. And they went for a Ruby, a Ruby Port cask. Now, just to say it straight off, the 27-year-old is immaculate, polished. It is balanced. It is beautiful. This is an amazing whiskey too, in my opinion, this 28-year-old port. But the difference between this and the 27-year-old is this is two-thirds, two-thirds fortified wine. Look at that colour. No, the colour is the first thing that stands out. So 27-year-old is super balanced, but it has influence from bourbon barrels, from sherry butts, from... Uh, you know, from uh, you know, but this is this is a uh, really the fortified wine is by far the dominant flavor profile in here, and that's the European oak, but also the port and the sherry influence on this on this whiskey. So they're not the same whiskey. This is not the twenty seven year old a year older. This is a 
a different whiskey, different production story, and quite a complex one at that. It's also um, that cast strength, lads, so and ladies, of course. And uh, basically, it's 28 years of age is the, the youngest uh, whiskey in here. Um, and it's 51.5% ABV. And look, it initially went on sale at 490 euro. Um, but like all these Dreamcasts, this sold out. Um, last year, we had unprecedented demand that really, you know, excited us. But, you know, it was really quite uh, overwhelming. So this year, they went for a ballot method to make it a little more fair. And they really went out of the way to try and make it as fair as possible. And we'll even try to and do that again next year. Uh, there was 912 bottles that came out of this uh, bottling. But a, a 22 of those went in to send it out to um, influencers and bloggers. Um, and basically people that would write about the whiskey and, you know, encourage people to, to get more into the whiskey. So um, just to say to you, the age range of the whiskey uh, is about 28 to 31 years of age. Um, you have four different casks that are giving influence here. So if you bear with me for a minute, would I be allowed to go through the production story or is it a bit, a bit well, too it's, much? It's far too complex for me to remember, so <laughs> you fire away. Fire away, okay. So let's... You've made the let's, uh, look cry. Make you cry, <laughs> make you cry oh, okay. So four casks, okay. One is a single pot still. Um, that was distilled in 1989. It was then matured in uh, an ex-bourbon barrel and then recast into that ruby pour cask in 1995. So it spent, you know, the guts of six years in an ex-bourbon barrel and then first filled bourbon and then into a ruby pour cask from 1995 until it was essentially bottled in 20, uh, 2020. So it's, it is not a finish by any stretch of the imagination. How many years is that? Oh my God, that's terrible. Is it 25 years in a ruby? Yeah, and not to be overpowered is amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. So, and then the second cask, okay, is a second, is a single pot still as well. Um, this And this whiskey, I should say, contains all of the pot still styles that we produce in Middleton. So you have all, um, you know, all the different pot still styles in here. This was distilled in 1991, the second cask, and it is full maturation in the second Phil Bourbon uh, until it was... So it's 28 years in the next bourbon barrel. Then you have a different pot still type, um, single pot still, which was distilled in 1991 and matured also in a second filled bourbon barrel for full maturation for those 28 years. And the forecast type is a, another single pot still um, distilled in 1991, aged in a ex bourbon barrel um, uh, until 2011 and then recast for nine years in a sherry butt. But then here's the kicker. They're all recast back into cask number one, which was the Ruby Pour cask. Yeah. So all of those, and then they marry in there for uh, 15 weeks and then you get the final whiskey. Yeah. So uh, that's, I know it's a little bit kind of all over the kind of complicated and stuff, but it just shows you the, the uh, complexity of it and how, um, a different it is but then you know chris if you want to jump in there and talk about just the the color and the nose on it and that sort of thing about how rich it is and um 
Well, just to um, just to touch on the blending of it. So the the core range itself, um, as Sergius was saying earlier on, year on year, the small increments of differences uh, you can pick out in the cast trends. But uh, for for a brand that's talking couple hundred casks, and we can say that there's 200 liters in a bourbon cask, 500 liters in a pork or a sherry cask. But the act, once you take away the angel share, every single cask sitting side by side, 180 something, 190 something, they're all completely different. So for a blender to work with literally thousands of liters to get a pretty much consistency throughout the whole with small little iterations, with this, like, absolutely outstanding and i do like the choice of four different distillates as old as they are the quality of the cast and everything you can tell that they're brilliant but the the kicker at the end to recast them back into the to fortified wine cast to let them marry to let them soak it back up and then to control all four of them so you don't have one dominating flavor absolutely fantastic the color is phenomenal um it's one thing when you have a, a 500 or a 700 mil bottle and you look at an incredible color. By the time you put a small dram into a glass, yeah. usually it doesn't live up to the color that's in a massive concentrated bottle. With this, side by side, really, really dark, almost or a little bit dark and mahogany, um, real good ruby tint to it. And then the port itself completely characterized, like completely comes across. Like it, it's oily and it's viscous, but it's light enough that when it does coat your palate, you do get room for fruit, you do get room for spice, and you do get room for everything to kind of come across itself. It's not one dominating factor, one layer on one layer. Everything's intermingled. You definitely drop that down to the fact that it has that recasking and marriage at the end. And is that is that what's making this so incredibly easy to drink i mean this does not go at its this does not drink at its calf strength you know this yeah, is, seems like, easier to drink than actually the 15 year old well as you said a 51.5 um is even though it's only five and a half percent higher than the the 15 year old the the angel share will bring the percentages down and down and down but the fortified yeah. casts themselves they add enough sweetness they add enough complexity to it to balance it out um and the fact that you're bringing a bourbon and a sherry and uh and the port together um you're you don't have a dominating port influence you don't have a dominating sherry influence or bourbon they're working in harmony with one another you can definitely tell that this has been in port but there's enough sherry there to carry across heavy fruits and light fruits there's enough bourbon there to carry across the vanilla sweetness and the light kind of um peppered spice that you would expect from a red breast, just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, even the notion of mixing port and sherry, you know, as constituent parts is something that, I don't know if it's been done before. You know, there aren't many examples, certainly, of whiskey being finished in both. Now, I'm sure this happened accidentally. But, uh, yeah, no, the balance is neither one nor the other overpower. I mean, the port is a little bit more to the front. Yeah, the um, the the closest kind of dna structure to this you could probably find would be the the bushmill 16 year old um when it comes to oh, something yeah. being in sherry and something being port but that's not ruby port it's a different type and this has one distillate that spent many 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 years in port before it gets the recast and gets the the re kind of marriage together um but 
there's enough of a sherry influence in obviously it's pot still versus malt but there's enough of a sherry influence in this to completely take it to the side there's enough of a bourbon influence to take it to the side but the ruby port itself which is kind of a classification which is quite funny some are some parts will do a ruby port finish that will a ruby port that will be a year old some three years old some five years old um this one definitely the, the influence there is it's powerful and really good that's amazing but I mean, you still do get the the wood hasn't lost either. No. You know, every component is active there, and they don't clash with each other either, which is what is amazing. Like, uh, if you could taste the four different casks side by side before you taste this, it would probably tell us a hell a lot more about it. But um, I would personally put down that uh, balance of wood to the the recasking at the very very end. Um, it will let everything marry together. It will let everything re-soak in. And yeah. I know 15 weeks is a short period of time for... Uh, 28-year-old whiskey. Yes, but for um, for uh, fatting anything from a Jameson blend the whole way up to 27, 28-year-old, the, the time in which it sits in a vat, be it a stainless steel or wooden, that is the difference between your balance and one flavor spiking. And with this, even though it is quite wooded, in a very very good way it's a balance of wood it's a balance of sweet it's a balance of fruit so there is trad pot in this chair as well is there yeah absolutely yeah yeah, so there's, yeah, yeah. there is and so you get that um exotic fruit type note to it mm. uh, which is for me kind of a real signature of it but like it's there's just layers and layers of complexity that chris was talking about there like it's it's like a dessert you know uh yeah, it's like fantastic. real plumminess from the the uh, port and you get um, chocolate notes and cinnamon, like it's just layers of ripe fruits. And, and I mean, but there's all those raisins and sultanas that you're very familiar with in Redbreast. Like it's distinctly a Redbreast whiskey, but my goodness, you're getting just such uh, value, if you want to call it, from from the fortified wine. Like it's absolutely, oh, it's yeah, beautiful. Those sultana notes, they're just pretty for me, especially, my granny used to grow sultanas or create sultanas in Greece. <laughs> so that no comes Are you back showing up? Really resonates. You're showing up now. <laughs> oh, I wish. I wish. <laughs> for sure. Um, look, that's a fantastic whiskey. I think, uh, you know, I don't want to pick a paper out of all of them yet, but it does stand out. Uh, do we want to go on the... Oh, sorry. One question I did have is the Dreamcast program is set to continue for next year. Yeah, I think it has been really, um, it has really been popular and successful and there's great passion for it um, in Middleton. Like the, obviously the Redbreast uh, team and Billy Lighton, who's synonymous with Redbreast and of course Dave McCabe or other blender. Yeah, they're they're working on it at the moment, I believe. They're working on our next, what, what will it be? What, you know, I find it really amazing that they were up they are able to be so creative and you know how you know it's just re- such a complicated complex and interesting thing i find it really interesting the way they're able to to come up with these ideas to create these dreamcasts yeah. and they really are they're unbelievably good they're just yeah. so good yeah 
That's one of the things about the program itself. Personally, I don't actually mind about the age statement that's on it from the 32-year-old to the 20 to the 28 because you're focusing on something completely and utterly different every single time. You're yeah. focusing on different types of fortified wines or the distillate types themselves or the, the amalgamation. Like um, each one that's been released, the three of them are very, very different, but they do focus on something that um, is really unique and it, it just showed warehouse itself. Um, if you were to creep in something along the lines of Marsala, Madeira, all different types of fortified wines over the years, whether you're dropping it to 15, increasing it to almost your silent distillery, 40 odd year old, like yeah. they're just uh, a way of a consumer looking into the warehouse without actually physically being there. And when it comes to the Ruby port, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And of course it's a great way of introducing port and sherry to somebody that might not be familiar with them as well. So, you know, there are people that just drink whiskey. Yes. So I, I we need the sherry industry to continue to do well because we need their casks. Isn't that right, Chair? I, sorry, you broke up there. I don't know. What, what was that? I was just commenting that we need people to continue to drink sherry and port so that we have great casks for whiskey. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean... You know, you think about something like um, you don't have to drink Oloroso. You don't, you know, there's loads of different types of sherry um, and wine merchants like, um, you know, people like uh, Mitchell's, uh, who are the agents for Lestau. They have an amazing range there. They have vermouths, which are beautiful, just over ice with a twist of orange. They have uh, you go to someone like, um, uh, you know, people, you know, O'Brien's or you go to um you know, any of the specialist off-licenses in Cambridge's and Galway or or you think of uh, the Celtic Whiskey Shop in Dublin, you know, they have great sherry selections and uh, great port selections and they'll be able to guide you through it. And yeah. they're available in all the supermarkets as well. You know, or pick up something like a Fino uh, or a Manzanilla sherry and have it with some uh, seafood, have it chilled. It's a really pleasant drink, you know. Yeah. And I think... Well, we why you mentioned the... Uh... Well, you mentioned the distilleries, uh, sorry, the off-licenses. If we can, everybody, if we can support the local, your local off-licenses as well, the small independent yeah. retailer, we know they're going through a difficult time. So if we can support them as well, obviously the bigger chains are doing very well, but the likes of our small independents that are offering us the variety, I think it's important we can support them. So bring us the sherry whiskey and port. And obviously, Jared just announced that the next... Um, Dreamcast has a vermouth finish. <laughs> I don't think he's giving anything away, unfortunately. Away, unfortunately. No. 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 When it comes down to it, um, if you're going to take anything away from this, start cooking as many paellas as you can and start using sherry to cook it off. Uh, yeah, no, one of the best things you can do when it comes to um, learning, tasting notes, experience everything yourself, if you're going to drink something with a sherry influence, drink a Fino and a Montiato and Oloroso and a Pedro Jimenez to learn the differences between them, uh, your Ruby Ports, your Tawny Ports, your LBVs. If you genuinely drink them on their own, whether it's side by side or just side by side, one of your favorite whiskeys that has that influence, it's one of the best ways to actually realize the difference between your all bourbon malt and your all bourbon malt with a port finish or your uh, different types of pot stills and the reason why a red breast is the way it is when it comes to bourbons and cherries um, and definitely with this uh, with this ruby port finish um, we sat down in the bar we drank a good bit of ruby port and tawny port side by side with a couple of different whiskies to figure out 
why you get the flavors you do, where they are coming from, and is that fruit impact from the distillate, is that fruit impact from the wood, or literally a combination of the both. And in doing that, you buy them from your local off-licenses, and but hey, and then Jura yeah. will sell them single casks, and we get even more treats. Well, I mean, the other side of it is, you know, you can't pigeonhole sherry into just being sherry either, yeah. or pork. I don't think they quite have the range that whiskey has, maybe, but it's not far, not far off a property. Uh, no, like a, when you sit down and you say the word Oloroso, for instance, which we will um, attribute to uh, a lot of the Redbreast range. Oloroso itself will have sec, which is sweet, demi-sec, which is kind of semi-sweet and dry from that Oloroso range itself. It can depend on the length of time it's sitting in the wood, how much oxidization it's left to. Um, you can do the same with Finos and Amontillados if you have seven different brands side by side. They're the same grape, same style, done in the same way, but you will have little iterations. The same way you'll have 10 different malts or 10 different pots still side by side, you will end up with different flavor profiles side by side. Um, but when it comes to sherries and ports, the length of time in the wood, the length of time of fermentation, everything will be that little bit different. And then it just comes down to the vatans themselves, just like whiskey with the blenders. Excellent. Okay, so let's get on to number 12, which I have to commend Chris on his strength and tightening the tops of these bottles. <laughs> Either that or I'm getting drunk, but uh, they're not the easiest though. So at least you've got them all in one piece. When so, we have three in the States, we have two in the UK and 20, 24 in Ireland drinking at the moment. Then myself, yourself, Omar, sadly, is uh, sitting in a meeting and not sitting here. Yeah, so uh, apologies, Omar. everybody. Omar, Omar uh, Pitzel of Last Dram Good and uh, the Talk Dram Tweet thing was meant to be with us uh, yeah. today. He was, yeah. he was saying that um, be it uh, tomorrow or over the next couple of weeks, he's going to sit down to all six over a Friday night dram, Saturday night sip or Sunday night sup and uh, walk you through his own tasting notes and his own experience and rewatch the video and have to sit through us. But um, yeah, he uh, sends his apologies and hopes everyone's keeping well. Excellent. Okay, well, look, we wish well. Uh, let's move on to the final one, which is Chris. Uh, this is last year, uh, the last release of the Redbreast Cast Rents, the B219. Um, one of the reasons for releasing, or sorry, for choosing a cast rent in the lineup is it showcasing where Redbreast went in 2011, deciding to uh, change the ways a little bit and showcase um, a cast rent whiskey, showcase what Redbreast is like for the blenders themselves when they're choosing the casks before everything is dropped. So usually for a cast rent whiskey, it's a vatting of many different styles or many different casks. And this is what the blenders themselves will actually taste before they decide to drop the ABVs down for bottling strength or for different commercial markets. Um, it's also a nod back to the 1950s and below for when you would get casks being handed from Jameson uh, or John Jameson and Sons over to Gilby's themselves. And they would have been handed them a cast rent as a full cask or whatever the angel share would kind of um, allow. And it was their choosing to bring the ABV down or sell as is. And the same with the bonders and merchants around Ireland and the UK. Um, they would be handed the casks at cast rent and it would be up to them to bottle it. So for this is a good treat. And if anyone is on Twitter, 
Dave Amara probably has to have a shout out. He's the most vocal person when it comes to Castrant whiskies, especially in the last Castrant Crusade kind of rebellion. But it does help and it does show. Castrant in Ireland specifically is a very hard thing to do because our VAT is and our duty is very, very high. If you go outside of the country, you can probably get a Castrant bottle for the same price. We would pay for a normal one. That's a topic for a different day. But um, Castrant for any new brand coming out, fair play to anyone doing it. It it is a risk. Redbreast obviously is a fantastic brand with a very, very good representation and reputation. Um, this is your regular 12-year-old at 55.8%. So good jump up in spice, good jump up in fruit, and a powerful enough nose. And when it comes to the blenders themselves, they're giving you the option to drink it as they drink it, to bring it down slightly in ABV to closer to bottling strength, or even bring it down further. Every single time you see a, a taste of note on the back of a bottle, that is cast rent brought down to 20 odd percent and they taste it to every single increment on the way down. So if it says that it has a cotton candy sweetness, that might be at 28.6. If it says it has a certain amount of fruit, that could be at the high 50s. So every time you ring it a taste of note, when you add water to this, you are now experiencing what a blender will experiencing. You're now experiencing Back in the 40s and 50s, what Gilby's technically will be experiencing, something that's unadulterated and untampered, so to speak. Yeah, it's a one... is unbelievably alive. Yeah, no, this is wonderful stuff. And I have to say, it is quite different from some of the other Red Breast 12 calf strings that I've had mm. over like... the years. Uh, one of the fun things about last year is it's the first year that they released two in a year. Now, I'm sure I might be able to touch on this. I'm not 100% sure if it was a labeling decision or a demand decision that they split it in half, so to speak. But um, from 2011 to 2013 and then from 15 to uh, 18 everything was done once i know 14 was the yeah. south american and american what? market that they kind of split it but ireland has only ever got one a year and last year was the so was the difference and a holy grail to be honest because b1 and b2 side by side they're very similar in dna but they are quite different um, you can pick out different spices in both. You can pick out different fruit in both. You can still tell us the same style of whiskey and same style of brand. But the, for me personally, the B116 is the one I will always hunt down and search for. And then the B219 is my favorite of the two, hence me picking this one. So the, yeah. the reason, Chris, is that the first batch of casts was about 28 barrels of whiskey in 2011. And... As demand increased, they increased the number of the casks in each vatting. And then it got to the point that last year, you know, it's about just under 100 casks of whiskey. Um, and basically what they did was they did two separate vattings. So that's that's why it got to that. The demand has built up. And previously, they would just do another batch when, um, you know, basically it ran out. So they go... We need more cast strength, and then the blenders would essentially create another batch of cast strength red breast. But they would develop it and tweak it all the time. And in parallel with the same way that red breast has evolved to become, in my opinion, I think it's the best. The best batch ever was the last uh, the last couple of bottlings of, of red breast. It's got so 
it's just got so good. Um, and I suppose the cast strength uh, in parallel, it is, it is um, now it, there's just much more demand for it, Chris. And that's why they did two, two bottlings last year. Okay. It's, everything, yeah. it's everything you love in Redbreast, but it, it is concentrated. So there's more spice, there's more fruit, there's more alcohol, there's more um, mouthfeel, it's oilier, it's creamier, it's spicier. It's just an incredibly good, um, incredibly good whiskey, you know. Well, what's the future for these? Uh, obviously, there's been a rebranding and... Uh, I'll share the rebranding. Obviously, everybody has seen the rebranding, but just for those that perhaps haven't, um, th there is a rebranding that happened. What was the reasoning for that? Do you know, Ger? Evolution as opposed to revolution. It's just that the brand has got to a point now uh, where it it needed, uh, it just needed this ev evolution. So it needed yeah. to, you know, uh, create more distinct identity around each of the members of the Redbreast family. So, for example, uh, you look at their cast strength now, it no longer is the same label as the 12-year-old. Uh, the 12-year-old had, you, you know, you can see it, sa it says 12 years of age underneath the label, but it doesn't have, it doesn't look like, like it's a different colour capsule closure up here. Yeah. It, which used to be identical to the 12-year-old, which is on the left of people's screen there. And what was happening was in bars, for example, sta uh, bartenders were picking up the 12-year-old cast drink and serving it accidentally instead of the 12-year-old. So they wanted to create unique... Yeah, great for you, absolutely. Not yeah. great for yeah. the bar owner. But, so you can see... I can attest to many months of stock takes and yeah. the style of lighting that we have in the Dillon. Yep. Yeah, completely. Yeah, it's dark in there, all right. Yeah. Yeah. When you see the customer smiling too much, you know it's happened, <laughs> or their breath has been taken away because they didn't realize what was about to happen. I remember. So you, you, it was it was also to give the bird uh, more of um, uh, prominence. So yeah. you feel you know the fifteen year old Le Maison the whiskey bottling. You'll notice it isn't. There's no bird on the bottle. It's actually um, a kind of a like antique image of a pot still. Um, so first thing they did about five years ago was put a bird on the label, uh, the red breast bird, and now the bird is in flight. So it's in a on a twelve year old. It's in a, a stationary position, and then it's in different stages of flight across the the range as well. Um, and it's not just age that differentiate them. You know, you'll know that different production techniques have led to unique characteristics to each member member of the family and um, so that's the reason behind the the, the it's not a rebranding it's just an evolution of packaging the whiskey it's the same great whiskey and in fact it's just you know they're always looking at at the whiskey and trying to tweak it slightly based on people's what people liked and they don't like you know billy lighton and dave mccabe are always listening to people's um commentary about different whiskies that they produce so they're not you know they're not just sitting in a room and looking at each other they really do um listen to uh what people say about the cast strength about 15 year old 
but any of the whiskies that are produced. So hopefully that explain, explains it. But, yeah. you know, Repper's 12-year-old is just essentially, my goodness, it's 12-year-old, but on steroids almost. Like it's... Yeah. Chris, do you want to give us really your tasting notes on this particular one then? And uh... On this particular one, um, I found the... I found the bourbon in our influence actually quite prominent. Um, that kind of bit of vanilla, uh, kind of dusty wood uh, dryness kind of to the front and then um, kind of towards the back and the sides of the month that the kind of almost pungent fruit sweetness kind of coming up and jumping. Absolutely beautiful. But uh, in the middle of your tongue is where that kind of woodness, is, our sweet kind of vanilla and woodness is coming forward back of your tongue the that fruitiness is coming when it meets in the middle it really does have create like a harmony and uh given another five or ten seconds uh the harmony kind of evolves you get a uh, slightly glands going absolutely nuts and you get a good bit of pot still spice from underneath but the regular 12 is more kind of cracked back pepper with this it'd be more kind of green pepper and pep or pink peppercorns that kind of fruity spice like <laughs> popping up it's absolutely beautiful but um yeah, and just it delivers uh, for a long time as well. This is a long finish on. Oh yeah, and actually, certainly in the price category, it probably is the whiskey with the longest finish. Um, for the price, I'm trying the to price, think. Certainly. You know, even you know, I, I often get asked about comparing this with John's Lane. The finish on this is is longer for me. Yeah, those that um those that were privileged enough to sit the Belfast whiskey week and try the John's Lane at Castrant. Um, the absolutely fantastic, but insane that the 12 year old Castrant for a majority of the years, the finish has been longer. Um, the John's Lane, the, it more ramped up the spice and more ramped up that um, kind of a date and apricot kind of, dried fruit notes but um the the finish is certainly more overwhelming with this it yeah. goes on for for days especially if you talk as much as we do it just does yeah. not stop so jared this is 79 euro is this um yeah for, as far as i know it is no it's it's more expensive 89, than that, isn't it? 89. yeah 89. it is 89 yeah. it's not yeah send it a bit uh just a little bit off there yeah it's it's i think it's great value for the price of it I mean, yeah. it's. Um, if we had less duty, it'd be great. You obviously had the ten euro voucher from Duns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not enough. But look, I mean, they've been they've been all fantastic whiskies. Mm. You know, it's hard not to get sentimental. The older ones, you know, the, the fact that the fifty and the sixty actually kept so much of their flavour profile is, is phenomenal. You know, they're, they're like they were brand new. So, mm -hmm. Chris, well done on sourcing some fantastic liquid. Thank you very much. Well done on, on uh, creating Thank you, Chris. fantastic to bring it through this range and raising money for a great charity. Mm -hmm. And we're getting this all an exceptional experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are, you know, once in a lifetime experience, in a lot of cases, you know. So. No, that's that's one of the bits of fun about um, doing something like this. Over time, some people are lucky enough, like uh, you will come across eventually, depending on the bar, the auction house, whatever, you will come across the 60s, the 70s and 80s and 90s. You might get to experience them. But when you have them side by side, wow. it creates a new story in itself. 
And okay. that's, this is the, the fourth time we've done this with different brands. Um, we've stepped on uh, Powers, Tullamore Dew, uh, Bushmills, um, a couple of Scottish, and this for the four different Irish. And this, thankfully, and someone said a prayer somewhere, um, has lived up to the fact that the levels are high. There's been basically no oxidization, and especially with the 60s and the 70s, they almost taste as if someone bottled them yesterday. Granted, the casts are a lot older, but it, it lives up to the ABV. It lives up to the the but level itself. Vibrant. I found mm. them all vibrant and lively. There was no dullness. There was no oxidation. I just, you know, thought it was incredible. So, and of course, we need to thank Jared as well for it's for not wearing his white shirt, which was commented on. By not wearing my white shirt. <laughs> uh, I think it was Rowan maybe commented on that, but. Uh, thank you to everybody that's joined us from all over the place. So I know it's still early in the US, so enjoy your lunch. <laughs> uh, you I hope, I hope, thank I you hope I made people cry. <laughs> thank you very much to Chris and Jared for being fantastic hosts. Uh, oh. I respect them so much. I mean, they're two incredibly modest guys that don't you know, take the praise that they should. And they are the backbone of this Irish whiskey industry. And for the whiskey enthusiasts, this is what we really love. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you all for joining, for helping the charities, for sharing your thoughts. And look forward to seeing you again. If you have enjoyed the show, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel or give our website a go, irishwhiskeymagazine.com and see if you uh, like any features there and may consider subscribing as well. And I feel really privileged to have been part of this. Thank you very much. Have a safe evening. And uh, sláinte, everybody. So sláinte. thank you very much. Cheers. From ourselves and from Omar. <laughs> Cheers, Omar. Cheers, Omar. Thank you. <laughs>